0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus as we continue our sermon series through the book of Exodus. We are in the Ten Commandments, and today we are on the Seventh Commandment. We are looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. If you haven't brought a Bible with you, our passage this morning is found on page 61. 61 in your pew Bibles. As we have been working through the Ten Commandments, we have seen a progression. The first four have been were focused on God Himself, uh, what God demands, having no other gods before him, not making images of God, etc. etc. Then our responsibilities toward other human beings, beginning with parents, and on to the sanctity of life, and now to marriage, which is indeed the foundation for society. And in fact, it goes back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. So let's look at our passage, our verse, our commandment for today. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Amen. Thus far, God's reading. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement in your word. We thank you for the exhortations. We thank you for your commands. We thank you for your commands that come from your holy character. We thank you for your commands that are good and right and good for us. And so, oh God, we do ask that you write your word on our hearts this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps one of the most tragic stories in all of Scripture is found in Second Samuel chapter 11 the story of David and Bathsheba. It was, many of you know the story, I don't need to rehearse it in great detail. Lay out the basic outlines here. It was a time when kings go out to war and, of course, David did not go. He stayed home. He was not where he was supposed to be. He was lounging in the late afternoon. He saw a woman bathing. Instead of turning around, he took a good long look. As Phil Ricken said, he became obsessed with her. He asked about her. He sent for her. I think this is a, going to be a PG sermon generally. He had sexual relations with her. Both were married, both of them. The most famous adultery story in the Bible. This had dire consequences for the rest of David's life, if you read further in the book of Second Samuel. It led to murder. He had a son by the encounter who died. He had after that another son who raped one of his daughters. He had a son who took over the kingdom. Moral of the story is sexual sin has consequences. It has consequences. Now, this seventh commandment is broader, as we've seen with the other commandments. It's broader than just what technical, quote, adultery is, means. But as we will see, sex changes us. It changes us. In proper context, it changes us for the good. When it's not in the proper context, it changes us for our destruction. I want us to look first this morning as we get into this commandment at the nature of marriage, because I think that's important to see first, the nature of marriage. In response to I don't know why God gave me this on when I'm preaching on this particular sermon. And maybe there's some connection here. <clears throat> the nature of marriage. In response to a question from the Pharisees, Jesus, regarding Moses' allowance of divorce, Jesus says this in the Gospels. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, quoting from Genesis one twenty seven. Then quoting from Genesis 2.24, he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So that's in response to the Pharisees' question with regard to Moses allowing divorce. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and he A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. So notice from this a few things. First of all, marriage is God's doing. That's first of all what this passage says. What God has joined together. It is God's doing. Paul says, secondly, in Ephesians chapter 5, he quotes Genesis chapter 2, and he adds this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church, Christ and the church. So in other words, the covenant between Christ and his church is fleshed out in the covenant of marriage. The covenant between Christ and the church is fleshed out out in the covenant of marriage. In other words, marriage is to display the covenant between Christ and his church. The language, third, that's used in Genesis 2.24, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, uh, the and and in the quote here that Jesus uses, of course, the Hebrew the original in Genesis is Hebrew, the language used in, in um, the uh, New Testament, the Greek, uh, is a word that means an attachment. They're joined to one another. In older translations, the translation says, cleave, to leave and to cleave. Sometimes I've heard people translate this as they are super glued together. Hold fast to one another. Superglued, cleaved to your wife. This is the nature of marriage. It's God's doing. It is something that displays the covenant love between Christ and his church. It is two people cleaved together. I don't know what the past tense of cleave is. Maybe it's clove, I don't know. Marriage is something that is not to be broken. It is a covenant, as scripture describes it. It's a marriage covenant. And as O. Palmer Robertson describes biblical covenants, he defines it this way a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. A bond in blood. What does that mean? It means covenants are broken on pain of death. And it fits. If they're one flesh, it's broken on pain of death. Now, within that relational oneness, within that commitment, sexual union is good. Sexual union is good. It is given to strengthen the union of that commitment. Within marriage... Sexual union is a gift. It unifies. Tim Keller describes sex within marriage as covenant cement. That's a somewhat unromantic description, but there you have it. It's a gift. It unifies. It's a delight. Song of Solomon, yes, describes romantic Love between a husband and wife. It's not some kind of allegory for God and the church. It's romantic love. If you're about to get engaged to someone, read it with your wife on your honeymoon. It's about romantic love. It's erotic. It points to the goodness of sex. Isn't it amazing that God gave us a whole book of the Bible Devoted to the goodness of sex, it's good within the context of marriage. Within the context of marriage, it's also a responsibility. First Corinthians chapter seven, husbands and wives, first Corinthians seven three and four are to give each each other, give themselves to each other. It's a responsibility. G.I. Packer sums it up this way in four words. God is for sex, but in the right context, in the right context, and that is the context of marriage. I'm not going to turn there, but in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and following, we have this wonderful contest. Proverbs chapter 5, the goodness of sex within marriage and the danger outside of it. Proverbs 5, 18 and following, you can read that later. That leads us secondly then to the nature of adultery. The nature of adultery. Basically, we can sum it up this way, it breaks the covenant of marriage. It breaks what should not be broken, and that is the covenant of Marriage. It is broken, as all covenants, on pain of death. At least that's the Bible's position, on pain of death. Leviticus 20, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. You break a covenant, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, you're put to death, and that's the punishment in the Old Testament. Doug Wilson writes, certainly an adulterer is worthy of death. A man who will betray his wife will betray anyone and anything. Adultery is treason against the family. And God hates it. It breaks the covenant of marriage, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. But as with other commands, this commandment, of course, applies more broadly. Look at your bulletins. Once again, I've included... Questions from the Heidelberg Catechism that are helpful, as with all the commands, doesn't just narrowly include adultery. Let's look at questions 108 and 109 from the Heidelberg Catechism. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That God condemns all unchastity. And that therefore we should thoroughly detest it and live decent and chaste lives within and outside, within and outside the holy state of marriage. 109 Question: Does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? Answer. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul. And God wants both to be kept, cl- both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. So we can go on; we can say more. This leads next to that it applies to any sexual relations that are outside the bonds of a man and woman in marriage. It includes, then, premarital sex. It includes homosexuality, which, of course, is explicitly forbidden in both the Old and the New Testament. God's intention from the very beginning was for one man and one woman to be one flesh until they were parted by death and other forms of, any other forms of immorality as well. Phil Reichen asked the question, why is adultery in all its forms forbidden? And he answers his own question this way. Not because sex is bad, but because it is designed to be such a powerful force for good. It is designed to be such a powerful force for good. And so it can only be within the bonds of marriage. But this also includes lust and includes sin's of the heart. Turn with me, as we did last week, to the New Testament, to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Jesus says this, you have heard it said, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Is our sins of the heart, as we call them. Jesus here is preaching with what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You're familiar with it. He, in many ways, is showing himself to be the the new Moses. It's interesting here. Jesus is is up on a mount the way Moses was on a mount receiving the the 10 commandments from God and and we see him uh repeating some of the the commandments that Moses is receiving and what is he doing? He's bringing out their their full intention uh, for us. And he has said I I he says at the beginning of This sermon, or near the beginning, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That is, to to bring out its its full intention. And we see that here. The biggest need is to control our lusts. It's to control our lusts. Because of where it leads. The lust itself is sin. Sin. And it leads to more sin. But it is the lusts that our culture wants to feed. James 1 says that our lusts lead to adultery. But again, as Jesus says here, lust is adultery. It is sin. It breaks the seventh Commandment. Men in particular, sometimes women, but men in particular, are tempted to feed our lusts. Magazines, pornography, certain television shows. We need to say with Job, I have made a covenant with my eyes never to look lustfully at a woman. In lust, what do we do? We turn inward for self gratification, away from true love, away from the one flesh union of marriage, away from God, away from God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, When lust takes control, God loses all reality. God loses all reality. Third and finally, we need to see the significance of the sexual union. The significance of the sexual union. For this, we're going to look at one more passage. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The significance of the sexual union. First Corinthians six. I'm going to begin at verse twelve. Paul here in First Corinthians is actually dealing with sexual issues in the Corinthian church, and he begins here in verse twelve by quoting. Uh, quotes that the Corinthians have have given to him. You can see that if you have the ESV, ESV puts quotes there. It's because uh, most likely it's quotes coming from the Corinthians. All things are lawful for me. Paul responds, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. Paul responds, but I will not be dominated by anything. <coughs> and quotes... Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. And Paul goes on to say, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Let's stop there for a moment. The flow of Paul's argument basically is the, the Corinthians are essentially arguing to Paul food for the stomach, the stomach for food, that having sexual relations is no more significant than eating food when your stomach is hungry. Food for the stomach. Bertrand Russell the British philosopher, among other things, once said, Sex is no more significant than drinking a tall glass of water on a hot summer day. No more significant. And Paul says, What we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our bodies matters. In fact, God raised the Lord. He will raise our bodies too. Our bodies are to be raised. Our bodies are significant. They will go on. Paul goes on. He goes on in verses 15 and following to say this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. What is Paul saying here? When you en- when you engage in sexual relations, you become one with that person. It involves the whole person. It is more than just the body. It is the whole person joining together. That's the significance. Of sex. It's the significance of adultery. It has deep, profound impact. As one writer puts it, sex changes us. We are not the same as we were before, we have become joined to another. As I heard one preacher say once, when you sin sexually, you are cutting at the core of life. Sex can only be within marriage. Only within the context of being united fully within a lifelong commitment. Otherwise, it destroys Within a lifelong commitment, it unites, further unites covenant cement. Otherwise, it destroys. In adultery, we sin against ourselves, and we sin against others. But at the end of the day, most importantly, we sin against God. As David puts it in Psalm 51, his psalm of confession after this sin with Bathsheba. Sin of adultery, sin of murder, David said to God against you, you only have I sinned. The good news, brothers and sisters, is it is not the unpardonable sin. God forgives. Yes, there are significant consequences physically, emotionally, spiritually. Yet it can be forgiven. How do we know this? Well, we know it from the life of Jesus, we know it from the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, where Jesus explicitly says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. But he also goes on to say what? Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. That stalwart of faith and model of morality, Ted Turner, once said, If you're only going to have ten rules, I'm not sure whether one of them is going to be don't commit adultery. Brothers and sisters, God is sure. Obedience is pleasing to him and it is good For us, there are devastating consequences for those who disobey. Just ask David. Let's pray. God, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for your commands. How we thank you for your commands that are pleasing in your sight, that are good for us. And so, O God, we pray that you would continue your heart surgery, your heart transformation in all of us, O God, your sanctifying work that we need, that we would love you with all of our heart, that you would give us clean hearts and clean spirits, O God. We would love you, that we would obey you, that we would walk in your ways for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.